evening. So before all the partying, we're going to talk a little bit about what God has to say about who we are. We've been doing a series this fall on identity. Uh, who are we if we're followers of Christ? What does the Bible have to say about that? And tonight, the, we have two last topics. Next week, Chris is going to talk about we are sheep. And today, I get to talk about we are conquerors. All right? We are conquerors and we are sheep. So you can come back next week and decide which you'd rather be. Well, you've got to be both. If you're a follower of Christ, both a sheep and a conqueror. And I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. You follow along with me. Hear God's word. What then shall we say to these things? Paul's wrapping up here the first eight chapters of Romans. He's just laying out the gospel and our assurance of salvation here especially. So he comes here to the end of chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, I want to talk a little bit. My focus here is verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. I want to talk a little bit about what it is we're trying to conquer, what Jesus has conquered, and what we can conquer through Jesus. All right. I, mean, I was reflecting last week with Professor Hutchinson visiting from MIT. And uh, he was talking about science. Obviously, we were discussing, like, well, what can science do for us? It can do a lot. We've been able to put people on the moon. That's very impressive. And we repeated it multiple times, right? It's like we have phones in our pocket that give us access to unparalleled riches. But his fundamental point was that science is limited to a narrow set of questions, albeit with certain impressive technological results, but is limited. And a lot of the most important questions, indeed the most important questions in life, are not answered cannot be answered through the scientific method. And I was reflecting, what are some of those questions? What are those issues? And I was thinking about this just as my first point. What is it that we're trying to conquer? We talk about conquerors. We've got to unpack that term. What are we trying to conquer? What are we trying to overcome? What victories are we uh, pursuing? And uh, I was reading um, uh, this week, the Princeton Alumni Weekly, you'll all get this. It doesn't actually come out weekly. How often does it come out? Once a month now? 14 times a year. 14. <laughs> there we go. It is not weekly, but you know, don't hold that against it. And the cover article, I was very intrigued because the cover article was like, How to Fight Loneliness. And I'm like, finally, the Alumni Weekly is taught. The Alumni Weekly never talks about people like me, alumni like me, right? It's like, it's always uh, profiling. People who are like doing stuff that sounds more impressive than what I do, right? <laughs> it's um, you know, it's like who's founded a company or a nonprofit, something you know, something that looks like a big deal that the New York Times would write about. Here they're like, oh, this is what I do in part. 
part of what I do, is like how do we fight loneliness? And, um, and I, I'm going to pick, uh, all apologies to the alumni weekly, but I'm going to pick on it, because truth be told, it upset me. It upset me, because finally I was talking about an issue which was near and dear to my heart, and uh, the advice, it, yeah, I'll get to this in a little bit, the advice it gave, I think, was at best mediocre and tight possibly counterproductive. I'll get to that. That's secondary. But the point it made, so this is a very powerful point, you know, alumni are always asking us, PCF staff, like, how have the students changed? And, you know, that's a dangerous question to respond to, because the older you get, you get, the more you're like, wow, you know, the culture's collapsing. You know, I mean, you've got to resist that impulse, right? In, in many ways, like, fundamentally, you all are the exact same as, like, I feel like me and my peers were. I can't speak to the voices peers back in the 70s, but, you know, I still, I still want to lay claim that in the late 90s we were, like, not so far in the past. You know, there is some truth. I want to ask us that question. And there are some things we say, like people are more distracted. People now, you get, like, deadlines. You've got, thing, in my, when I was a student, things were only due at 5 p.m. Now you get things like, oh, it's due 9 p.m. It's due midnight. It's due 9 a.m. Right? They've just, like, enabled you to, like, never sleep. So they're so superficial. That's my standard throwaway response to, you know, satisfy the alumni. But in a more serious way, like, we see things like loneliness on the rise. And so this article, this was helpful to me, because, you know, we see that broadly in society, things like loneliness are on the rise. And, I, you know, it was especially disturbing, and this confirms our anecdotal experience, that at elite institutions, that's a lot worse. The percentage they threw out in the article was 70%. 70% of Princeton students struggle with loneliness, and the general population was something like 40%. And I was reflecting on that, like, because we're like trying to achieve a lot of victories here. Right? The kind of people who are here are driven. Uh, often, you might not even know why you're driven, but you're driven uh, to accomplish things and to achieve goals. And in some ways, it's deeply counterintuitive. How can we be winning in so many ways, technologically speaking, or things generally in the sphere of getting stuff done, and yet getting worse, not just like holding our ground, but getting worse at things that really objectively are more important, like whether or not people are lonely. I mean, the article, you could see their struggle because it's like they were, they were profiling this alum who's a Harvard Medical School professor who is a nonprofit um, that talks about fighting loneliness, but uh, and he was addressing it because it's a public health crisis. Like, we need some quantifiable, at least social scientific level of credibility to care about it. I'm like, I mean, if you didn't have studies that showed it actively harms our physical health, like, would we just ignore the loneliness? It's like these deeper realities, emotional realities, and beneath that, spiritual realities we ignore. Right? Now, I want to put to you that, like, we may be good at winning a lot of different kinds of victories. At conquer, I'm still, year by year, impressed and amazed with the new kinds of talents that come across uh, my path here at Princeton, right? It never gets boring. Yet, I want to put to you that it's quite possible that we are fighting, fundamentally, the wrong battles. We are fighting, fundamentally, the wrong war. We have all this technological prowess, and maybe it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Because it's hard if you're dealing with that reality. Well, I mean, here, let me just pick on the article a little bit. Maybe I'm doing the nonprofit injustice, because the, the sub-headline was purchase art supplies. So it's like, I read, oh, you know, how to fight loneliness. I'm like, they're going to give me an answer. And this is going to help me in my work. 
Um, and it's like, purchase art supplies. No, uh, let, me, let me encourage you in art. Like, you want to fight loneliness, purchase some art supplies and come hang out with my daughters. Many, a number of you have done this. And do art with them. That will fight your loneliness. Right? Anyone yes? Yeah, that will fight your loneliness. But the problem is the article was kind of like, I felt like it was almost doubling down. I'm like, because the, the, the battles we're trying to fight are like, what do I want to do? This is what we're doing. This is what separates us from people. We don't have unstructured time because we're always heading somewhere. And even when we're heading somewhere with other people, they know it's because we have some other goal in mind, right? It's very hard to be friends with people who you're like, are they in it just because they're headed somewhere else? Or just because I'm useful, right? You want to be friends, you've got to kind of like hang out. It's like, how do you know someone's your friend? You know they're your friend when they could be doing something else, but they choose just to be with you. It's a little hard if we have no unstructured time. Right? Like, what is it about the elite schools, as they said in the article, that we're like, worse at? We're worse at it. So I, I want to put to you, it's quite possible, I think it's true, that we are good at conquering, but not the right things. But not the right things. Second, what has Jesus conquered? Right? This is the crux. Let me turn to the passage. How has Jesus conquered? What does that language mean? So this is how it starts. Going back to verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, who can be against us? Let me think about like, what, is, what are the things that uh, are so remarkable about Jesus? What are the things that are so remarkable? Well, Professor Hutchinson, he did a talk. He's written a book. He did a talk at the church, uh, Stonehill Church, last uh, Saturday on miracles, defending miracles. He's, a, as a physicist, defending the things that this is what people struggle with coming from a modern materialist mindset. It's like, can Jesus turn water into wine? Can he raise the dead? These kinds of questions. I want to I wanna say that you know, when I read the Gospels, the things I find most miraculous, the victories that Jesus accomplishes that are most striking to me, are not actually the things that are changing the laws of physics. They're not the things that are changing the laws of physics. Things that I find, that, here I'll mention three. One, the woman at the well. In the Gospel of John, Jesus goes, here's this woman at the well. Jesus is this teacher. Socially speaking, she's, he's, she's someone, she's a Samaritan, she's a woman. She's going in the middle of the day, which is a sign that she's an outcast from her own social circle. She's had, like, she's had five husbands, and she's with another guy beyond that. Like, it's like, socially speaking, he should have nothing to do with her. And there's none of that in Jesus. He just engages with her. Has compassion on her. He cares about her. And he wants to give her water which will, will, will give her more than just, uh, uh, which will assuage more than her thirst, but will assuage her spiritual thirst. The chapter before, here's the second instance, which I find miraculous. The chapter before Jesus, he's there, he's in Jerusalem, and one of the members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, one of the teachers of the people, it's like a senator equivalent in our culture. It's like a senator comes down and comes to him at night to ask him, like, to, to explain things. I mean, he calls him rabbi, this you know, mighty, well-educated man. Jesus is a carpenter from Galilee. And here's this important individual, this educated individual, who comes to him to say, I see that you are from God. And he seeks great understanding. How would you respond if some senator showed up in your dorm room and was like, teach me? How would you respond? You'd be like, I'm awesome. You'd be like, this, this person, I got it. Get with, they're going to get me a job. They're going to connect me. I'm going to like get a bill passed. The world will be changed. They'll write about me in the Alumni Weekly. 
right? The woman at the well, that will not rate the Alumni Weekly, and yet, unless you create some large nonprofit that's about a thousand women at the well who you never actually talk to face to face. Wow, I'm criticizing. But that's how we respond. Jesus doesn't respond that way. He's not like overly impressed. At the same time, he's not disrespectful to Nicodemus. In the same way he engages with the woman at the well with Nicodemus, he just sees, you know what, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He just engages with his spiritual need. That's what Jesus does. He is that level of self-possession, that level of security, and at the same time, that level of concern for others. Here's a third, a third incident I want to draw. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So it's like, this is a famous miracle where Jesus creates bread enough to feed 5,000 households of people. But the context is, like, he's been doing all this ministry, and because he's a miracle worker, people follow him around. It's overwhelming. He's always trying to turn them away from miracles to understanding their need to repent and uh, embrace God and repent of their sins and embrace the kingdom of God. Anyway, he goes away. This is the context before the feeding of 5,000. They got on a boat. He goes with the disciples. They want to escape the crowd. But, you know, he's so famous at that point that they follow him. So by the time he shows up, here are thousands of people. How would you respond if you're trying to get away? You know, you get overwhelmed sometimes if you're an introvert. You get overwhelmed sometimes and you just need to get away from people. Right? You've just been pushing hard and you just need some time by yourself and you go off and they're 5,000 households of people there. <laughs> and they have no food, and they want you to feed them. How would you, how would you feel? How would you feel? Annoyed. <laughs> or, I mean, maybe, maybe you, if you were like, you'd be just like, I am that awesome. 5,000 households should show up to listen to me. What does Jesus do? This is what the scripture tells us. He looks at them, and he has compassion on them, because he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. This is a teaser for Matthew. They were sheep without a shepherd. Right? They're looking for guidance. They're looking for meaning. In that sense, maybe they're fighting better battles than we are here at Princeton some of the time. Because they're at least asking that question. How can we find some purpose and meaning, something of value, something that, something beyond just this, this life, some guidance. But Jesus looks at them, he has compassion. To genuinely look at people, when it's not convenient, when it's a huge imposition, and he sees their need. He loves them. These are the miracles that Jesus performed. Let me kind of bring it back to the text now, because I want to talk about what it, the love of Christ means. That There in verse 37, it says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let me back up then to the earlier verses and unpack what is meant by Jesus loved us. Because fundamentally, what I want to communicate to you, to be more than a conqueror is, first of all, to believe in Christ's love, to welcome it into your heart and to respond to it. Right? To believe in Christ's love. But let me explain what I mean by Christ's love. Because I don't just mean that deep compassion and care and concern that Jesus had for whoever, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the crowd, the huge crowd that he fed. It is something more and something in its core very specific. So what is it? What shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? First, what is contained in Christ's love? He who did not spare his own son. So this is God the Father did not spare his own son. Why? Who gave Jesus up to be crucified? Octavius Winslow, 150 years ago, said, not, not, uh, not Judas for money, not Pilate out of fear, not the Jewish leadership out of envy, but the, the Father out of love. Why did Jesus go to the cross? The Father out of love did not spare his own son. Think back to Abraham, prefigured this with Isaac going out. But of course, Isaac, he was given a substitute, a ram to sacrifice. 
God the Father did not spare Jesus' own son, but gave him up for us all. What does that mean, gave him up for us all? Such that, verses 33, no charge can be brought. Verse 34, no one can condemn. Why? Because let's focus on verse 34. Here's the crux. Christ Jesus is the one who died. What does this mean? What happened when Jesus died on the cross? For your sins, the price was paid. This language there in verses 33 and 34 is legal language. Who shall bring a charge? In a court, God is a judge. We've rebelled against him. Against him. Who uh, will can we were under condemnation, but no, Jesus has paid the price for our sin on the cross. He died, but more than that, more than that, who was raised, he rose from the dead. The power of death was broken. He rose from the dead. This is like explaining, understanding. Professor Richardson was referring to this, the historical plausibility, the historical force behind the reality of the resurrection. Dive into that. We're, we're, here we are, we're at Christmas. We're celebrating Christ coming as a baby. I wanted to encourage you to grapple with the historical arguments that provide force in understanding how Christianity had such dramatic power. What happened to the disciples that right before Jesus was crucified, they're a bunch of cowards. They're abandoning him. They're defeated. The victories they were looking for were military and political, so much so, or at least some like wise teaching. And here they are. Their Savior died, but they saw him resurrected. How did they end up? They went all over the world because they saw him not just die, but more than that, he was raised. But more than that, he is at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us. What, what does it mean to say, what victory has Jesus won? This is a hard one. You know, we're so focused on our victories over pain. They're hard-fought, right? Victories over problem sets and papers. For instance, like a hammer pounding you down, right? You get better at something and they get a bigger hammer. <laughs> you know, it's pretty good long-term academically, I'm told. <laughs> and, uh, but these, hard, this, these were the victories they were looking for. But no, Jesus, he has conquered death itself. Sure, he conquered compassion. He conquered caring about people who should have been culturally beneath his notice. He, he, he conquered like the kind of uh, desire for power that would make people fawn over Sanhedrin and those seven opinions. He conquered all sorts of things that are just universal problems with human beings. He was so like us, born a baby in Bethlehem, yet so perfect, so different. But he conquered death on the cross. He broke the power of sin. He enabled our forgiveness. We can stand not, not no longer condemned. You look on the cross, those wounds, they were for you. Jesus suffered for you. He died for you. If you only come and believe and humble yourself. You are more than a conqueror, there in verse 37, through him who loved us. Not through your own power. Not through your, through your own talent. This is the beauty of the conquerors that Christ makes. They're not conquerors because of their skills. Like those who have success in business or success in science. They are conquerors because they humble themselves and they recognize what Christ has done for them and that he sits at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for us. We can approach God unashamed, unafraid, no longer condemned, with joy of his purpose. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, if we accept the deep love that he has for us and if we respond. This is the, this is the conquest Jesus has made. Let me turn third kind of conquerors Jesus makes. What does it mean to say we are more than conquerors? I mean, it's kind of like a, it's not a term we normally use, right? In the, in the Roman context, 
um, in which uh, first century Christianity, in which Paul is writing, like they had a very clear sense of what conquest was. They knew what they were looking for. They, the Caesar uh, would go out, you conquer some people, you take their leaders, you bring them back, and you drag them in chains behind your chariot in the streets of Rome. Very clear cut what conquest was. What kind of conquerors does Jesus make? First, I want to talk about I want to talk about what people have overcome. What kind of power are you being given? Let's focus on verse 35. This is where Paul turns. Having described the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, he turns, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He lists seven things here. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Let me just turn. Like, like, Paul is not some ivory tower academic um, just writing about this in the abstract. Right? He lived all these things out. If you turn to 2 Corinthians 11 verses, I'll just read a few verses. You know, Paul is defending his authority. He, he, he says things like, oh, I'm speaking like a madman, because he's talking about all the stuff he's undergone. So I'm going to read verses 24 to 27. Five times, he's describing all the ways he suffered for the gospel. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews before he lashed his last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He, you know, if you go into it, he covers everything that's back there in Romans 8.35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangers, except sword. He, he had that later. Under the Emperor Nero, he was, since he was a Roman citizen, he got to be beheaded, quite literally, with a sword. So Paul's writing, here, this is a challenging but really powerful thing. Because it's like, often when we think about, I want Jesus to help me conquer, we think of it in therapeutic terms. We think about it in therapeutic terms. And what I mean by that is often we think about it in a limited way, like, you know, the kinds of goals I'm trying to conquer are these very limited things. Important things like loneliness. But kind of that's it. How can Jesus help me with my loneliness? Let me tell you, Jesus will help you with your loneliness. And this is what I desperately want Alumni Weekly to say. And I think social science backed this up. You want to fight loneliness, like, go find a church. Um, you know, if you're, if you're really lonely, you need someone who's going to be really willing to talk to you. You're going to have a lot of stuff to get out, right? If you're really lonely, first person who will listen to you, you're just going to start word vomit. So you better go to a church to find someone, find a pastor, because it's their job. <laughs> to listen to that word vomit. That includes me too. Lots of us here. That's what I want them to say. But uh, you know, what is what is Paul saying? He suffered all this. Uh, like it's not just therapy. This conquest is so much more profound than this. I mean it's challenging because who wants that? Do I want verse 35 from my life? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword? No. You? I mean, I don't know. Princeton is some crazy folks. Um, your life might say you do actually desire that. Right? Your actions may be leading to that. But um, this is not what we desire. But you know what I do desire? The ability that if I, that's actually everything that I go through, that it would not separate me from the love of Christ. But even that, even that, all of it, everything Paul went through, would not separate me from the love of Christ. That I would be more than a conqueror. Even death itself. That I want. He turns, you know, verse 36, he quotes from Psalms just to make sure you understand that he's not saying you won't have any difficulty. 
Well, Psalm 44, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We are sheep again. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's not saying it won't be difficult. But he's saying you, in the love of Christ, are confident. Here's where I want to end is describing how people are confident and how you can be a confident. How people are confident and how you can be a confident. Because people have. This is hard. If you have very limited experience, I think, of life, this is a hard thing at Princeton because you're all so young. It's like, how do you know? If you, a friend recently, last week, said to me, she said, um, you know, when she was young, she came from hard circumstances, bad, best friend went to jail, you know, all, various issues, serious issues. And she made it out. And she's like, when I was young, I bet my life on Jesus, and then that has worked. I bet my life on Jesus, and that has worked. And how do you know unless you've seen it proved? Uh, let, me, let me draw a few. There are so many examples I could look on. Uh, but, but let me give a framework for you. There's a famous statement back in the 16th century during the Reformation. There's a group of Protestants who got massacred uh, in a town in France by the Duke de Guise. He was fond of massacring Protestants. Um, that's what he was famous for. And de Beza, a guy, Theodore de Beza, he was the leader of the church in Geneva. And he said to the king of Navarre, he said, the church is like an anvil being hit by a hammer. Referred earlier, Princeton can be sometimes, it can feel like a hammer the basis said, the church is like an anvil. Do you know what an anvil is? Right? There's a grad student group, blacksmithing. They have actual anvils. They exist. That's that metal thing that you hammer against when you're forming something, when you're working, working something. The church is like an anvil. It gets hit a lot by a lot of hammers. That's the image. But it's broken a lot of hammers. That's what the basis said. It's broken a lot of hammers. Let me, let me expand on that a little a little bit historically, and a little bit about our lives. That anvil, I don't want to be an anvil, truth be told. I don't want to have to get hit. But I want to be an anvil, I want to have that strength, such that it will be the hammer that breaks and not me. That may sound tough, it's so much better than that to be a conqueror in Christ, but let me get there. So many examples. Let me give one. Blandina, a slave woman, in Lyon, 177 AD, she was a Christian. There was a persecution in Lyon, loved in what's now the city of Lyon in France, uh, under the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. There was a persecution, and there were many people killed. Blandina was notable because she was a slave woman, and she refused to recant her faith. Right? This is martyrdom. There's so many martyrdom accounts, but this is where the where the, it hits the road. That where there is proof that you are more than conquering Christ, that not even the sword. They, like, they, they, they put her over a fire, and then she, she wouldn't recant. And in the amphitheater, there's a memorial there to it now. And then they ultimately, they um, uh, unleashed a bull on her to gore her, and ultimately they had to kill her with a knife. But what was so striking was here this terrible death was inflicted on her, but she refused. Her love for Christ was greater than all that. It enabled her to conquer all that. And the, for her, the Romans... It's like here they were the hammer. They were good with the hammer blow. Right? Make people submit if they don't kill them. It works all the time. But it failed. And it failed with them repeatedly. They got a lot of Christians to recount a lot of things. But if a slave woman is stronger morally, if the love she has in her heart is greater than the force that you can impose on her, it makes you not just ridiculous, it makes you weak. That hammer of Rome broke, pounding the anvil. Slave women like Blandina. Let me, let me 
jump forward uh, in time. This is about like the Bible in English. So sometimes, like maybe if you've read the Bible a lot in your life, I hope you do. It's really worth it. Um, but sometimes you like you get used to the language. Sometimes I go back and I read early translations of English, the English Bible, the Geneva Bible, King James you can do. That's famous. But the Geneva Bible, that's like 16th century. Beza, he was part of that, doing writing that. Before that, the Tyndale Bible. You can go even farther back to Wycliffe. But you know what? I, I was reading about that. I was reading some of the Tyndale. I was reading this passage in the Tyndale Bible to try to help you look at it afresh. You know what happened to Tyndale? He got burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. He got burned at the stake by the church for translating the Bible into English. You know what happened to Wycliffe for translating the Bible into English? They dug up his bones, they burned them, and they threw them into a river. Who? The church. The church did that. Right? People for the cause of Christ have been suffering, but most notably been able to triumph over that suffering in the love of Christ. People burn to give you this so you can read it. I kid you not. At the hands of the church, no less. But it wasn't just that they were willing to suffer. Okay, that's that's proof. That's proof. But it's more than that. It's not just that they believed Christ. They felt his love more than they felt everything that happened to them. They also were compelled by it. They responded to his love. Right? They reached out. You think about the early church. Part of the breaking of the hammer of Rome was not just that the church people were willing to witness to the faith at the point of death. They were also willing to care. This is like the pagan Roman emperors commented on this. To their horror, the Christians cared not only for their own poor, but ours as well. When the plagues came through... Christians, because they love Christ more than their own lives, would go and minister to the plague victims or to the lepers. Right? It wasn't just that their resistance broke the worldview of Rome. It was also that their compassion. They had the love of Christ to make them strong, and they had it to compel them to transform the world around them. And it broke the power of Rome. Same thing with people like Tyndale and Wycliffe putting the Bible into English. Eventually, the institutional church of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance was forced to allow it. They fought it. It was illegal for centuries to have the Bible in English, but they, they were forced by the boldness of those who wanted to follow the example of the apostles and putting the word of God in the language that people could understand. They were forced to allow it eventually. They were forced by that witness. And people were transformed by the word being put into their hands in a language that they could understand. How does that apply to us here? Right? We're far away. No, neither Rome nor the institutional church is trying to persecute us. That's long in the past. But what does it look like for us to believe that Christ loves us and to respond to it? What does that look like to it for us? Well, let me go back to that. You know that crisis that we have at Princeton? And it is increasing. Like, you know, when alumni ask us, how, how have things changed at Princeton? And this is true, I kid you not. Things have gotten worse in terms of emotional and mental health at Princeton. In recent times, noticeably in the last 15 years, noticeably, gotten worse. Statistics bear that out. It's not just at Princeton, but it's worse at Princeton. It's even worse in the grass. I have to think back to my childhood where it's like there's this bromide, like education is the solution to everything. Like objectively, like coming to an elite school, if it increases your chances of these emotional, how it's possible, it's just the selection bias of the kind of people who make it in. But if it increases your... Chances of things like loneliness, like you might be smarter not coming to Princeton. Don't, don't, please come back after Christmas. I believe in Princeton. <laughs> really, I do. Really, I do. I'm uh, part of the same sickness. Um, 
But it's even worse than grad school. I was just reading a study at Harvard grad school. 10% of the graduate students at Harvard have contemplated suicide in more than one day in the last two weeks. Let me run that. Consider this, how bad this statistic is. 10% of the grad students at Harvard, I do grad ministry at Princeton, it's the same here. 10% of the grad students at Harvard contemplated suicide on more than one day in the last two weeks. Right? Objectively, if you're interested in your health, you should be like running away from elite institutions and education as fast as you can, right? That's not quite, that's not the right answer. Um, it's complicated. Come talk to me if you want to think about some of those issues of mental health. But so what does it look like for us? Because we have hard things to conquer. And it's not problem sets. I mean, they're hard in their own way. But they are secondary. Tests, papers, jaw, and it's all very important. It's all very important. It's so easy to be deluded into thinking, this, this might work. Everything. This is the only victory I need. The real battles are in our hearts. The real battle is to come to grips with the love of Christ and our need for him. To turn away from our sin and to receive and to respond to his love. And you know what? That is happening here at PCF. You know, I've seen, we've always had a lot of hard things going on on campus. We've always had a lot of hard things going on in our midst, in people's lives. And I've always seen people step up. People, I've, you know, you wouldn't expect to step up and act in truly Christ-like ways. To love people, to bear with them, to show that compassion, to spend time, to sacrifice. And you know what? I see that happening at PCF. I see the needs rising. We see them rising. But I see people rising in response. I see that kind of Princeton ambition, that drive. I see it. It's not all just devoted to building better technology or the equipment. I see it devoted to love, showing the love of Christ to there are a lot of people in this room. I want to encourage you. I want to commend you. Who I've seen do remarkable things. Step up. Freshmen through intern. All the way through. Do remarkable things to care for one another. Who sacrifice the law. And I look at that and I say this. Because you know there's a point where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I did that. I did a good thing. But you know at a certain point it wears on you. If you don't have the love of Christ, if you don't have that deep sense like, Jesus died for me while I was yet his enemy. That's an inexhaustible reserve. You don't have that. How can you bear with people? Right? How can you do, how can you show that concern? How can you persist? I see that happening here. In this room. I see it happening on this campus. Whatever the needs are. And, you know, it, it's like, I, I mean, I wish, I wish we lived on a campus where we didn't need cry couches. This is a shout out to Dog. There was a cry couch in Dog. Couch of Sorrows. I'm corrected. It doesn't mean people sat there, I hope, and sorrows were inflicted on them. Some of the time. The Couch of Sorrows. You know, I have that in my house too, right? We all need a Couch of Sorrows. Now, I prefer Cry Couch. That's a better term. That's a better term. Right? It's like, this is the battle we need to fight. First, in our own hearts to come to grips. God exists. He's created us. We need to turn away from sin and come to him. Beyond that, he's risen. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding. And in him there is all joy and hope and peace. Such that people have suffered whatever. Nothing separated them from the love of God. Not death. Quite literally, not death. Not life. Angels, rulers, powers, height, depth. Anything in all creation, in case you're like nitpicking. Paul throws that there in verse 39. Anything in all creation. 
right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it compels us. It compels us to show it to one another. Let us be those people to lead people to Christ and to clothe those who need to be clothed, to feed those who, who are hungry, to uh, provide shelter for those who need, and I, I mean that quite literally, those who have those little needs, but also spiritually. It's Princeton, one of the reasons our problems are so great is because we have it all together on the surface, and so then our steep spiritual needs, that 70% loneliness, just gets hidden. And we're so busy that we can ignore it, right? You're just multiplying our spiritual issues. You're just multiplying our spiritual issues, but here, if you come before God, come on your Thank God for the love that he has for you in Christ. Look on the cross. He died for you. And respond to him in loving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this passage in Romans. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would um, that you would give us that deep and abiding sense that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because we are followers of Christ. All this, all these hammers bearing down on us. strong as steel such that those hammers would break. And Heavenly Father, you give us such depths of compassion, such strength of love. How can we not have that response in light of what you've done? You give that to us, Heavenly Father, and that makes us, enables us, frees us to love one another. Lord God, may, may we here on the campus be agents of your light, your reconciliation, your God, may we not just be super, super bright people with all sorts of opportunities accomplishing sound and pure to the Bible. Rather, Lord God, may we be those who love you and are loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name.